make sure to let the scriptures speak first. You read and then you pray and then you preach. So let us, uh, let us look at God's word this morning. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly verse 58. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for today, for your grace, Lord, your mercy, for a time we could come together and hear from your word and sit under it, Lord, as, um, as always. Would your word go forth? You promise us in your word that it will not return void. Um, we do not preach in vain, but you accomplish your work. So we invite your spirit now to come and change our hearts, to illuminate us, to, to show us uh, what you would have for us. Lord, would you hide me behind your cross that your word would be heard and, um, and Lord, that I would, would become less as you would become more even in the preaching of your word. Uh, be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is, uh, it's always one of my favorite Sundays to preach, honestly, is the week after Easter. Uh, I love the church calendar in general. The church calendar kind of gives us, kind of puts us in a rhythm for, throughout the year. I mean, every year in December, right, every year we're, we're kind of looking at the, the birth of Jesus. And then from uh, around March or so, we kind of go through the season of, of Lent where we're, we're preparing uh, our hearts for Easter and for uh, the cross as we delve into the sorrow of our own sin and confession. And then as we did last week, on Easter every year, we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection. And, and I can imagine, um, you know, we look through in, in the book of Acts that the, the apostles are after the resurrection, they spend about 40 days with Jesus and then they're, they're with Jesus and all of a sudden he raises, he ascends and they're like, wait a second, Lord, aren't you going to, aren't you going to restore the kingdom? What's, what's going on? They're like, all right, you've, you've come, you've died, you've risen from the dead, now what? Right? Now, now what do we do? And that's what this entire message really is about, the, the now what of after the resurrection, what does it mean to us? How do we sort of apply that? What, what do we do now? So as we dive into this verse, we're kind of cheating a little bit. We're just doing the last verse of the chapter. But the reality is the last verse of the chapter is, is based off of the entire chapter itself. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole. But 1 Corinthians 15 is packed full of theology. Packed full of theology of the resurrection, of the, the coming of Christ and the, the resurrection of, of, of Jesus, and then our resurrection as, whole, as a whole. We're going to get to that. But um, I think it's important to recognize in the beginning of this is that we're beginning with the end. And the end here begins with therefore, which, as many of you heard, every time you see in the scriptures the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it, what is it there for? It's something, it's, it's a, a key to us, a flag that says something was just announced, something was just presented, and now, in light of that, we're about to have a command. We're about to have something kind of drive us forward. Now, this verse is, is an application, an application of the deep truths of the theology of the resurrection. 
It's almost like he's saying, because of all of this, because of all of chapter 15, now do this. So I think there's an important thing to pull out of this, to think through. Theology is incredible. It's important. Uh, particularly in our, our sort of background, our strain of, of the church, we, we love theology, true things about God. But theology must drive us to application. There must always be a therefore. It's not enough just to have this great understanding of who Jesus is, who God is, what he's done, but it also must drive us forward in living us, living out the response of theology in our lives. The therefore drives us to live in a different way. So today, after the resurrection, we learn what is what does the scriptures tell us how to live in light of that? So back to the therefore. The therefore uh, very clearly points us back to the beginning of uh, the entire chapter. And I want to read just the first verses of, of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has gone through 14 chapters of application, of, of dealing with specific instances, of laying out the gospel in different ways. Uh, to the Corinthian church, and he says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He's saying, now, we've talked about the specifics, but now I'm gonna remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's saying, now, in this letter, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I'm going to summarize it. And he goes through the next 57 verses. That's a long chapter in the New Testament. 57 verses all about resurrection. The first 11 verses talk about specifically the resurrection of Jesus. Again, we don't have time to walk through verse by verse what this chapter is. I'd encourage you uh, to take some time over the next weeks, months, year to read through and to study. You could probably preach this, this, um, this chapter for a year uh, if, if we wanted to, but we don't quite have time for that tonight. So just to summarize this morning, the first 11 chapters are about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say that he appeared to, to Peter and he a, appeared to James and he appeared to, to Paul as one untimely born and even to 500 witnesses. He has, he's making this case of the historicity, the reality, the factual nature of the resurrection of Jesus. He even says he appeared to over 500 at one time and, and most of them are still alive. So Corinthians, if you're doubting about this resurrection, well, give, give them a call. Talk to them, ask them, they've seen it. He showed himself to be alive through incredible proofs. It's based in fact, it's based in reality. And then he moves to the next section in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There was a debate in the church and in this area about whether resurrection was even possible. Because if you think about it, in general, since the foundation of the world, dead means dead, right? Dead means dead. But now Jesus has reversed this. 
there's a bunch of people claiming that Jesus is now, he was dead, he was buried, and now he's raised from the dead. So Paul kind of shifts his argument from the reality of what Jesus has done and the witnesses there, the case for Christ's resurrection, to say that he was the first fruits of resurrection, that he was just a deposit that actually points to our hope of our resurrection. Because even now we know death is the ultimate enemy. Death is the ultimate foe, and Jesus has defeated it. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we now have hope in ourselves that we who are in Christ will be raised. He even says that your friends that have fallen asleep are other brothers and sisters. There's hope for them because of the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, even goes on to say that we should be pitied most of all. If our hope is only for right now, why are we suffering torment and torture? Why are we suffering all of this difficulty if there's nothing left? Says if there is no resurrection of the dead and Jesus himself is not raised, then we above all people ought to be pitied most of all. But the resurrection is true. The resurrection is our sure hope in Jesus. Then goes on to address these other issues, but but some some will say and ask, How are the dead raised? By what kind of body do they come? What does it look like? And he goes on to explain the resurrection body and he uses this illustration of of when you plant a seed, it grows into something different, that that what is planted has to die and be brought forth as something different. And he uses these words that what is sown perishable is now raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown natural is raised spiritual, that there will be a difference, that our resurrection is a fullness and a change in who we are, and it is sure. He then even addresses this question of what will happen for those that are alive when Jesus comes back. He says, even they will receive this different body. In the twinkling of the eye, they will be changed. They won't taste death, but their bodies will be renewed. And then he ends this passage with the, the idea of the victory over death that the resurrection gives. He says in verse 43, for this perishable body must, not, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this crescendo of hope and victory and conquering. The resurrection of Jesus is the sure foundation of our resurrection and holistically the restoration of all things. It's a beautiful chapter worth a lot more than what I just gave it. But it's rich in theology. It's rich in truth, in history, in understanding. But Paul says, therefore, because of that, let us not just fill our minds with truth about God, but now let us live our lives in light of it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and we're not going to spend much on that, my beloved brothers, I believe it includes sisters in that as well, 
but it's not a throwaway comment. It shows who Paul was preaching to. In this section, what he's about to say is for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, and because of that, are the beloved of God. Brothers and sisters, believers, this is who you are. But then he gives the command, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So be steadfast. What does it mean to be steadfast? The dictionary.com actually says that to be steadfast is to be resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. To be resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. Wavering. To be firmly established. To have conviction and to move forward. Having you know, being willing to die for your resolve, the steadfastness of character, this idea of perseverance. I picked up running a few years ago, and uh, I used to run when I was a little kid. I used to run little sprints, just run, you know, 40 yards, and that was pretty tiring. Now I try to run a little further. I've run a, you know, 5K, 10K, uh, but there's this whole, this idea of a marathon. Um, I've never tried it, maybe one day. But a marathon, when you run a marathon, you have to be steadfast, you have to churn on. This picture of being steadfast is that constantly moving forward in a positive direction, continuing and continuing, persevering, enduring. You're not jumping out. You're not sprinting. You are enduring. You're steadfast. This word in English is used to help describe the word in Hebrew, hesed. This beautiful word in the Old Testament that has to do with our, our covenant, the covenant faithfulness of God. And the way that, that we translate the word in English uh, for the covenant faithfulness of God is this idea of steadfast, that the love of the Lord is steadfast. I preached about a year and a half ago through uh, chapter uh, 136, Psalm 136, and the refrain of that passage is this beautiful refrain that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. As we think about this word that we're called to be, realize that it is used to describe the love of the Lord. Continuing, going, enduring, faithful, strong, this is what we're called to be. Now, we know, we, we know we're not those things, right? We know we're not steadfast. We know that he is the one that is steadfast, and he redeems us and, and brings us back. We just had our, our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon. We know we don't live in our steadfastness, but we trust and rely and live out of the steadfastness of the Lord. That Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, went to the garden and prayed and prayed Lord, if it's your will, would you take this from me? But not your will, but mine. He was steadfast. He moved forward through difficult circumstances. He fixed his eyes on the cross. And he moved towards that in a steadfast way. We're called to be like Jesus, and like the Lord himself, as he works his character out in us because of the truth of the resurrection. But not just steadfast, but immovable. These have similar ideas. To be steadfast and to be immovable are similar, this idea of not changing. But immovable has a different kind of 
a different flavor to it. To be immovable is to be incapable of being influenced by feelings or moved from one's purpose. I think of steadfast, just the way I think of it, as a, a constant chugging along, moving forward in the direction in which you're going. A view immovable as standing firm and standing still. Remember as a child going to the beach, I used to love to play in the waves. And I used to love when the waves were big enough to actually be difficult to play in, where you could jump over top of them, you could dive through them, or you could try to stand still as long as possible. As long as your little legs would hold you, you sort of put yourself down, lean a shoulder in, and it comes, and you just, if you can stay still, then you sort of conquered. That's what I view as immovable, is that we set ourselves you look at in Ephesians chapter 6, as part of the, the armor of God, he says, let your feet be fit with the shoes shod in peace. The shoes of peace is that idea that when you're in battle, you do not run away, you stand firm, stand still. I think of Moses and the Israelites as they're fleeing the Egyptians before the Red Sea. The Red Sea is not, is not parted yet, and they don't know what's going on. They've got the sea on one side, and the army is coming at them, and the people are terrified. They're scared. They want to run. But Moses stands and says, be still and see the deliverance of God. All you have to do is watch. But imagine trembling there in fear, wanting to run away. But we're called to be immovable, steadfast, firmly planted. Think of Martin Luther, who confessed the gospel and was under trial for this and had potential to be executed. They brought him back and they said, recant of your writings, recant of your theology, recant of this gospel. And he stood there and he said, here I stand. I can do no other. Bring whatever you need to bring. Whatever the consequences are, he was steadfast and immovable. Because of the resurrection and the surety of our hope, we are called to be consistent, steadfast, and immovable. Then it says, in those things, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're going to spend a little time here in what this means. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's take a few minutes to really sort of question, what does he mean by that? What is the work of the Lord? How do we always abound in the work of the Lord? What is, what is the Lord doing? I think a helpful verse to understand this comes at the end of the story in Revelation, verse, chapter 21, verse 5. The Lord says this, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. I want to take just a, and back up away from 1 Corinthians a little bit and see the, the entirety of Scripture as a whole. We have to look at the, the big picture because Paul really points us to this, Right? In chapter 15, he doesn't stay and remain at the resurrection of Jesus. He points it towards our resurrection one day when he will return. He says there's something else coming. Maybe the apostles, and maybe we thought that, that the climax of the story was the cross and the resurrection, but what he's saying is we still have further to go. I remember watching uh, The Lord of the Rings as the movies came out and The Return of the King 
Um, and and the, the climax of the story is over. And then there's 45 minutes left of the movie, right? Like we tried to stand up three or four times because we thought it was over. And then it would fade out and come back. Fade out and come There's more to the story. There's more to the story. It's not over. We're in this in-between time. So let's, let's look a little bit at the big picture of the scriptures. And we're looking from Genesis to Revelation. There are really four chapters in the Bible. The first is this, that the big story of the scriptures is that God created, and he created good. We fell. In chapter three of Genesis is, is the fall of humanity into sin. And we see throughout the scriptures what the fall, how the fall affects the creational goodness that was put into creation and how things just consistently get worse and worse and worse. But then Jesus comes and offers rescue. There's redemption on the cross and in the resurrection. And then one day there will be a consummation, a finishing of all things where God will make all things new. Now, what's interesting is in Genesis, before the fall happens, explaining the creation to Adam, he says, if you do not eat of this tree, if you do, surely you will die. What he actually says in the Hebrew is that if you eat of that fruit, dying, you will die, die. If you eat of the fruit, dying, you will die, die. And we know Adam and Eve, they eat of that fruit and they begin to die. Death comes into our world. There's a sacrifice made for them, which is another whole sermon. But death begins to reign in the world until Jesus comes. But we also see these different relationships that are there creationally good and that are broken by the fall, that death enters these relationships. We have the relationship between humanity and God himself. And when Adam and Eve break that relationship, they begin to die spiritually. They're separated from God himself, separated spiritually. When they they eat of that fruit and sin enters in, they begin to die relationally. We see this immediately. Adam and Eve begin to blame each other. Adam's like, yeah, I ate it, but it was, you know, the woman that you gave me, God, she gave it to me. The woman's like, yeah, but it was the serpent. And like, they're all just sort of already, the relationship is broken. These two sinners have little sinnerling kids and Cain and Abel come around and a brother kills a brother. Death enters the world through murder. And it goes down and down and down from there. We see the brokenness between humanity's relationship with themselves. We see this emotional poverty that begins to happen, an emotional death where we see that the the way this works itself out even in our lives now is we don't know who we are. We We often hate ourselves and don't understand ourselves and there's shame and there's guilt and all this internally. We see it work out and play out in mental illness and depression and difficulty. We see the relationship between humanity and nature itself 
broken. We see their physical bodies begin to experience the effects of sin and death as they decay and age and die, as disease comes. We see it through creation as, as the world starts to, to denigrate, to kind of move away. You've got things like like storms and floods and all these other things that, that happen because our relationship with nature is broken. It is by work now that we experience thorns and thistles in this world. All of these relationships were broken in the fall. Therefore, all of those relationships are being restored by Jesus in a partial way now and in a more full way when he comes back and when he returns. See, the ministry of Jesus and the work of God himself is about restoring everything that was broken in the fall. If we look at the ministry of Jesus himself, we can see this. It's a strange thing that happens If we look at it through this lens, it begins to kind of give us clarity that where Jesus saw death between man's relationship and God, he brought life. He called people back to the Father. He called people back to relationship with God himself. He offered forgiveness. He restored worship. As Jesus saw brokenness between neighbor and neighbor, He taught us to love our neighbor and what that looks like. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to to care for each other, to restore brokenness in relationships between person and person. He valued people that were undervalued in society. As Jesus saw people that had a messed up, broken image of themselves, he restored it. Called them brothers, called them children of God as he saw the brokenness in the relationship between humanity and creation and the brokenness in creation, as he saw sickness and disease and death and decay, he came and he interacted with that and brought life to those dead places. Jesus brought heaven to earth. He brought life to death. His entire ministry was a ministry of resurrection. See, because Jesus was unique in the sense that He had one foot in the future coming kingdom. One foot in the all things made new. And one foot in the present realities of the brokenness of the sinful world. But everywhere he went, when he saw death, he brought life. Every part of when he saw people that were demon oppressed, he looked into the future coming kingdom and said, no, that they'll be conquered then. And he brought that reality into the present, when he saw people that were hungry and looked into the coming kingdom and said, there is no hunger, then he fed. So there would not be an experience of hunger now because he took those realities and brought them into today. He had one foot in each world. In the resurrection of Jesus, the realities of the future coming kingdom become the realities Now. We expect creation, fall, redemption, 
consummation. We look forward to the day where everything will be made new, but right now, in this unique period of time, after the rescue of Jesus, before the return of Jesus, there is one who is the first fruits of the resurrection, who exists in reality and in fullness as a resurrected one. There is already fruit of the harvest here now. It's as if he took the coming age and the age we are in and he brought them together and overlapped them that we're not just waiting for the fullness to come. There is fullness and reality existing now. There is an already and a not yet. He overlaps the two. This is part of what it means for Christ to be the first fruits. So here we are after the first resurrection, waiting for the coming resurrection in the overlap, in this time. And Paul says what we're to be doing is to abounding in the work of the Lord. We work in the strength and power of Jesus and through our union with the risen and reigning king to bring heaven to earth, to bring life to death. The work of the Lord is, is, work, is working with Jesus to make all things new now. So we look at the broken world through the lens of heaven and everywhere we see the brokenness, everywhere we see death that came from the fall, we engage, we move towards it. We bring the gospel to bear. How do you defeat death? With life. Jesus took our ultimate enemy, the ultimate penalty for our sin. Dying, you will die, die. And he entered into that death, conquered it. He said, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He rose from the dead. And he gives us this ministry of resurrection and of life. So now as we see death in this world, as we see broken relationships between people and God, we bring life, we bring resurrection, we bring healing. We introduce people who are broken in their relationship to who Jesus is and offer them true fellowship with the God who created them and can make them new. As we see death and brokenness in relationships between neighbors, we bring the reconciliation of the gospel. As we see death in our families and relationships, we plead the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to bring about life. As our marriages struggle and seem hopeless and seem dead, we remember that Jesus was in the ground for three days without hope and without expectation, yet he rose conquering that. If we have a savior who can rise from the dead, there is nothing impossible, there's nothing hopeless, there's nothing so desperate that the life and resurrection of Jesus cannot heal. As we see systems in our cultures, we see things like hate and racism and war and all of these things, we say there's death there. And as the church, we bring life, the life of Jesus. As we see those and we struggle ourselves with broken relationships, even with our own selves and our emotions, we bring the healing balm of the gospel of forgiveness and adoption. And where there is death there, we bring the hope of the gospel. The life of resurrection. 
knowing that he is making all things new and that may be a process that endures through the rest of our lives. But there is hope in the resurrection. When we see brokenness in creation, when we see sickness and disease and pandemics and, and difficulty, we engage them. That's why it's incredibly Christian to be a, a doctor or a nurse. There's gospel implications for addressing illness because we look into the future and there is no sickness, there is no death, there is no weeping, there are no tears. And we take those realities and bring them to today so we fight sin and the effects of the fall at every turn. When we see hunger, we bring food, spiritual food and physical food because there will be no hunger in the day to come. As we, we look at the world and we see the pollution of the world, we see mistreatment of animals, we see difficulty in the environment, we engage it from a Christian gospel, biblical perspective to say how can we bring the life of the resurrection into that. Our ministry, brothers and sisters, united with Jesus, is to bring the resurrection to bear everywhere. We live in this unique time between the rescue and the return of Jesus. We bring heaven to earth. And Paul ends by saying, knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus was in the ground dead and he rose from the dead. We know that because he is making all things new. So if we are working in the Lord, working in his work, he will accomplish it. It's not about us. The Lord uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's not about us getting this right. It's about us embracing our brokenness and the brokenness of the world and trusting in the resurrected king to live his new life in and through us and to let that spill out into the death and brokenness of this world. He will make all things new. And he is doing that in us and through us. So therefore, Dearly loved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For we know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your resurrection, for the surety of our hope that we do not hope in little things. We hope in a risen Savior who proved himself with undeniable proofs. Where that we can stand firm and walk forward in your might, knowing that it's not in vain, doing your work. Where whatever comes against us, it just doesn't matter. Because you are working to redeem all things give us strength, give us your power, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust only, only in you, Jesus. Amen.